Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to the Leaving Eden Podcast. Welcome to this special episode of the Leaving Eden Podcast. Uh, we are here, your hosts. My name's Gavriel Hakoen. And I am IFB cult survivor and cult expert, Sadie Carpenter. How are you doing today? How's life? I am, I am doing okay. I know a lot of people in social media comments were wanting to make sure that I was doing all right. I did not like... <laughs> the period of time between the first two episodes of the documentary coming out and the second two episodes coming out, like being on pins and needles for that roughly 22 hours was not great for me. (laughs) But now that I've seen episode four, I feel much better and I'm doing okay. Yes, we are here today to give our initial reactions to Let Us Pray, A Ministry of Scandals, which is a documentary about the IFB, or Independent Fundamental Baptist Movement. Um, And this documentary premiered on Investigation Discovery and HBO Max on the 24th and the 25th of November. So the first two episodes came out on the 24th. The second two came out on the 25th. Um, For for people in the US, uh, I think it's up there on HBO Max and Investigation Discovery. Uh, I don't know about internationally. We've had some people asking questions like, "Where do I watch this doc?" Uh, from other countries. Uh, do we? Ha- do you know if we have an answer to that yet or no? We. I don't think we have a solid answer yet. But there are a lot of people in our Facebook group who are working on different ways that international listeners could get access to this documentary. Yeah, and I think. Um, a VPN might be a good way to go if you're 
uh, in another country. And I, I know that VPNs allow you to sort of like spoof it and say, oh, I'm in this country. Oh, I'm in this country. So you can, I think if you spoof your VPN to say that you're in the United States, then you might be able to watch it if you're uh, somewhere else. Um, but I, I don't know. I haven't tried that. This is going to be our reactions to the doc. Uh, in a few days, uh, we're recording this on Monday. On Thursday, we're recording uh, an episode with uh, Rachel Peach and Eric Skwarzynski, who were two people prominently featured in the documentary, and that's going to come out on next Monday. So be sure that you listen for that. Um, if you're a patron, it'll probably be available on either late Friday night or early Saturday morning, depending on your time zone. Uh, so be sure to watch for that. Yeah, I don't want to take up airtime from our friends who were actual documentary participants with my feelings because I have so many feelings. <laughs> so this is a, a bonus episode where we'll talk about our initial takes on the documentary. And then we are very much looking forward to talking to Rachel and Eric next week. Before we get into that, the Leaving Eden podcast is the podcast about my BFF and co-host Sadie Carpenter, her life in and escape from the independent fundamental Baptist uh, cult that she was raised, also known as the IFB. We talk about the IFB. We talk about other cults. We talk about religion. We talk about fundamentalism. We talk about you know groups like the IBLP. Uh, we've done episodes about the Branch Davidians. We've done episodes about um, the, the People's Temple, Jim Jones, Jonestown, things like that. It is our goal to promote freedom of mind, freedom of thought, and freedom of religion. So if you like our show, if you are a fan of our show, then there's a couple of things that you can do to support us. You can join our Patreon, and if you join our Patreon, you get um, access to like bonus extended versions of most of our episodes. They also come out a couple of days early, so if you want to get the episodes early, then you can join the Patreon, and you'll be able to uh, find those there. Um, you can join our Facebook discussion group and our subreddit, which are both great places for discussions. Both of those places are called Eden Exodus. So if you go to facebook.com slash groups slash Eden Exodus or reddit.com slash r slash Eden Exodus, then you'll be able to find uh, the, the two main discussion forums that we have to talk about the things that we talk about on the show we have some merch available in our threadless shop which is fun uh we have some holiday merch by the time this is out i might have a poll for letting some of our patrons vote on which holiday merch designs they want to see but we have a new one out that's kind of like a tacky sweater design uh that has a christmas tree and it says paganism on it uh which i, I thought that was kind of funny and those are available in our fred uh on our Threadless shop, link is in the description if you want to check that out. Um, I'm not going to go through and thank the Faith Promise Missions and I gave it all to your patrons today because we just want to get into this um, and this is just a bonus episode. But thank you guys, everyone who contributes to our Patreon. You guys are the people who make it possible for us to do the show in the way that we do it and with the frequency and with the depth that we do it and we would not be able to do it without you. And if you are new to our show, if you're just learning about us, do maybe to the Let Us Pray documentary. We would love to have you join the discussion over in our Facebook group. If you're going to do that, double check that you answer the membership questions. Uh, we use those questions to make sure everybody's on the same page. And it can be the safest place possible for a discussion forum on religion and politics and horrible religious trauma. Uh, we're we're doing our best over there, so make sure you answer those membership questions. 
In general, we talk about a lot of potentially triggering topics on this show, including but not limited to suicide and mental health, racism, misogyny, PTSD, PTSD symptoms, child abuse, mental, physical, and sexual abuse, and spiritual abuse, including guilt, shame, and fear. In most episodes, we will mention at least a few of these topics, but we try to avoid graphic detail unless it's relevant to the story that we're telling on that particular day. This episode in particular is all about the documentary Let Us Pray. So there will be discussion of childhood sexual abuse. There will be discussion of, gosh, what all? Rape, misogyny, purity culture, modesty culture, church abuse of all kinds. And in the documentary, there were very graphic descriptions of physical abuse of children. We will probably steer towards a more vague description of those, but it will be a topic of conversation. As well as the troubled teen home as well. Yeah. Um, So Sadie, you were raised in the IFB. Mm -hmm. What is, what are your initial impressions of this documentary? What did you think? This documentary was not as comprehensive of an overview as shiny happy people was, but having seen the whole documentary, I don't at all think that was a bad thing. IFB lore is deep and broad and detailed, um, as you would know if you'd listened to our J. Frank Norris episodes, the Trail of Blood episode, Pastor School episode, um, where we go in- into those those very nitty-gritty details of both IFB history and more modern IFB lore. I think focusing on, in particular, sexual assault survivors in this documentary was a good thing. Because they didn't get to go into who J. Frank Norris was or a more extended web of connections between different IFB churches, but they did get to show the IFB's biggest problem, which is that it exists as a network for covering up abuse. I'm really, I think I'm happy they went that way. I think somebody else could come along and make a documentary that's more historical, that talks about uh, past Heil scandals more in depth that talks about Scop's scandal more in depth that ties those men back to J. Frank Norris and other scandalous figures in the history of the IFB. I think that could be a, a totally different documentary. I'm really glad they went the direction they did with it. I agree. My thoughts on this doc are kind of similar to my thoughts on uh, the Shiny Happy People documentary. That if this is the first thing that you've ever heard about or that you've ever seen uh, about the IFB, then this is an excellent jumping off point. Obviously, you know, this is what uh, a four part documentary series. And I think each episode was about 37 minutes long or something. Whereas the shiny, happy people, I think they, uh, the episodes were like an hour long or some of them maybe more. So there is definitely less runtime. Uh, the runtime for this was about three hours total. And they obviously can't go into everything, but they touched on almost everything. Yeah, I was really impressed with that. Like, I was impressed by... I and, and, and we know this from having done our show in that we have a very long-form media content. Format. Very long-form. <laughs> very long-form. So that if we want to say, okay, let's make three hours of content about Jack Hiles... We can do that and we can go into the nitty gritty of what was, 
what's the deal with the fact that he had the affair with his secretary and there was a fake door that wasn't there or it was there or uh, that was between his office and the secretary's office and what he wrote in the biblical evangelist and what the biblical evangelist wrote about like and we could go about into the back and forth and things like that and that might be the subject for if somebody wanted to make a documentary that was almost like a I don't know. I think if you made a documentary like that was fully just about Jack Hiles, I almost feel like it would end up being like a in the tone of like the Firefest doc. Yes. <laughs> Am I crazy for think like because this man was just such a like and and also like a lot of these fundamentalist pastors. But um, in our Facebook group, we've uh been like looking a lot at what listeners are reacting to and what impressions that they have and a lot of the people have, have said basically the, the same sort of thing a lot of our listeners have said sort of that had the same kind of impressions that we had my biggest thought though is that i thought that this documentary was excellent in that it platformed the survivors and then said this is what they went through and this is the system that enabled that abuse to happen and happen again to other people yes um i would like to say i would love a j frank norris movie that would be crazy. You could, maybe, that- you could maybe even pull like DiCaprio for J. Frank Norris. I don't mean that as a compliment to DiCaprio. I'm not, uh, not a fan of his personal life. You know, if there was a J. Frank Norris movie, I almost feel like it would like, have you, have you seen There Will Be Blood? I don't think so. That's a great movie. And that's sort of like the kind of tone that I would want from like a J. Frank Norris movie. So I was aware of almost everyone almost all of the survivors in the documentary and their stories before i sat down to watch it i'm trying to think who i did i was not super familiar with april avila's story and i think everyone else i had at least heard or read their story somewhere i did not know about the connections between their stories and that's where the documentary really shone for me was illustrating the connections between these people for example i did not had read plenty about circle of hope i had i know a lot about dave hiles i did not know that dave hiles was formally connected to circle of hope i was familiar with kathy durbin's story and also with rachel peach's story i had no idea that kathy's brother-in-law was rachel's abuser and that he used Kathy's story to keep Rachel and April silent. And that they are related by marriage. <clears throat> and that, that he could say, well, you know what happened to my black sheep sister-in-law. And nothing happened to him. Right. Uh, until much later. So that is such a good illustration because it one of the things that I struggle the most to illustrate to outsiders, this documentary actually really illust- really. This documentary provided a framework for two different things that I really struggle to explain to outsiders from the IFB. The first thing is how are the how are IFB churches connected? Because the IFB's entire thing is that they are independent, there is no do, um denominational head, there is no denominational oversight. Each church is fully independent and the pastor is the big boss at each individual church. But they all work as a network. And this documentary showed that in a way that I have not been able to put into words well exactly 
what it means for IFB churches to be connected. I thought that at the beginning, especially, they made the point that these pastors are essentially gods. You know, it put it very well, but that, you know, they're all connected to each other and the back and forth and showing the back and forth where this person gets moved to this church after. Right. And when you have seen that happen in real life, it's wild to see it on TV. You know, I've been doing this show with you for three years. My background is not in fundamentalism. That was, I think, one of the hardest things for me to grasp when I was coming into it was saying, well, why don't people like go to the police or go to the authorities or say, this is a thing that's happening to me. And that was something that I had a lot of difficulty understanding that it's not just, oh, these are powerful people that are over me, but it's also, I don't have a framework for understanding that the authorities are people that could help me. Um, And I've talked about growing up with the fear of CPS and feeling that if I even went to told the truth to a doctor, that I would be ripped away from my home. And then there is the information control, which separates people into in-group and out-group. In-group is always good, always has your best interests at heart. Out-group is always bad and always wants to hurt you. Well, if you're taken away by CPS, you end up in a worldly foster home where they're going to force you to watch horrible PG-rated movies and they're going to force you to wear pants and then you'll be doing all all of these sins and that will be your fault. The, the, The way that they coerce people into silence and into compliance only works when it is a complete system of living. So if you're listening to this episode to this show, um, maybe this is like your first time listening to the show and you have a background more like mine where you had a decent education growing up and you didn't have education, uh, uh, you know, taken away from you or you didn't have the educational neglect like a lot of people in fundamentalism have. We tend to think of the way that we understand the world um, and the way that we're educated about the world as almost like a baseline, and that we don't really understand that people who think different things from us, there, there's like no norm for them to revert back to. That, that brings me to the other thing that is really hard for me to explain to outsiders. When I talk about stuff like modesty rules or purity culture rules or whatever that I enforced on myself as a teenager, I constantly get comments from never fundies like, well, I would have just told my parents to kick rocks. Well, why didn't you just tell them no? Why didn't you just, you were 15, 16, why didn't you just decide to be your own person? It, it's because I would have got sent straight to Circle of Hope. It's there is a a very real threat of abuse, and and we all knew that's something the documentary did not address. I knew as a teenager exactly what goes on in places like Circle of Hope or Hepzibah House or Agape Boarding School. I knew. I I mean, I had been to Agape. I visited Agape as a very small child. I think I was uh, seven or eight years old. And I may have gone back as a young teen, just like passing through the area and visited there. Uh, I knew exactly what went on in places like that. I had seen the bars. I had seen kids get restrained. So when I say I knew 
if I told my parents to kick rocks and I'm going to wear whatever I want, people would come in a van and take me out of my bed at night and take me to one of those places. That threat was not hypothetical. That was that was a very real fact of life. If you don't behave, this is where you go. So, and, and you were within fundamentalism when you understood this, but there were also people when we covered Agape boarding school that sent their kids there. I mean, there, there was the one mother who sent her child there because they said, oh, we'll give him animal therapy. And they very mm-hmm. much lied about what goes on there because they were just looking for anybody to get there so that they could, you know, keep making money off of people and keep, you know, having new victims for their abuse. Uh, yeah, there are people from the outside world that get duped, that get fooled by this kind of school. And that is a totally different scenario. But people within fundamentalism, I think, know exactly what goes on in places like that. So it always frustrates me when people give me the, well, why didn't you just do whatever you wanted? Like, you're a teenager. Teenagers just do whatever they want. And why didn't you just wear a low-cut top without a modesty panel underneath? And there's a very real reason. And it really um, it bugs me when people say stuff like that. I think that where that comes from, as as an outsider, I think that we all sort of want to tell ourselves, I would have never fallen for this. Yep, I'm or, smarter than that. I'm tougher than that. I'm better than that. And I know that that's almost sort of the attitude that I had when we first started doing the show. And, you know, if you go back and listen to some of the early episodes, that's, you know, kind of the attitude that I have. And then somewhere, You had a mild version of it. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't have said to you, that's stupid. Why would you have done that? But I would have said, oh, well, I, I mean, all the time. We were on TikTok the other day. We were uh, both at uh, Chad Harris or uh, Arch Radish on uh, TikTok. He, every Sunday, he does what it's unchurch, right? That's what he Not calls church. it. Not church. Not church. Yeah. Every, every Sunday. And he's an IBLP survivor. He was featured quite prominently in the shiny happy people documentary. If you saw that, but on TikTok, he does his, his like not church thing every, you know, Sunday where he just like hangs out with people, answers questions, stuff like that. And we were on with him the other day. And one of the things that he said was that he has the experience of people telling him how stupid it was that he, you know, didn't come forward about all of the abuse that he was dealing with uh, initially. And one of the things yeah, that he, he said, said was somebody he, victim blamed him for not going to the police as a four-year-old who was being yes, abused. That's, that was exactly what I was thinking of. And it is when I talk about self brainwashing and self enforcement of these cult rules, that is one very real reason that people like Chad and I and other IFB and IBLP survivors complied. Um, there was there was brainwashing. There was teaching that we were doing the right thing, the only holy thing, the only acceptable thing, and that to encourage us to do the right thing, the the fundy phrase would be out of the abundance of the heart. <sighs> Sadie triggers herself. Um, but there was also, so there, that is the carrot, but there was also a stick. And I really, it really bugs me when people call me stupid for going for the carrot because they don't seem to understand that there was very much a stick behind it. Yeah. And speaking of the Agape boarding school, 
there was um in 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 part three which was the part of the documentary that spoke most heavily about the agape boarding school and and the troubled teen industry and all of the horrible things that go on there there was a line that fundamentalists often try to separate themselves from the world and that this is partially motivated by a desire to keep children away from mandatory reporters or people who are legally required to port to report a physical or sexual abuse in your experience do you think that that characterization is accurate absolutely um the more insular and self-sustaining your community can be the less access your child has to mandatory reporters so if you don't send your child to public school and they either homeschool or go to a private christian school through your church there are no teachers to report your child's abuse if you can use a doctor within the ifb system which some people do have access to that's one fewer mandatory reporter. The more services you can consolidate under the IFB or church adjacent umbrella. If your church has a lawyer in the church who is IFB that you always work with whenever you need anything, any legal needs that you might have, that's one fewer person that could potentially report abuse if they noticed signs in your child. So I don't think that is the only reason that fundamentalists attempt to provide as many services in-house as possible. But I absolutely think it is one of the reasons. This is all because I didn't grow up Christian either. The idea of having everything that you need in-house in your church system is a like that. That's a thing within evangelical Christianity outside of the IFB. It's just that this might not, it might not have the same insular nature to it. Right. Um, and that's because of separation and secondary separation. So for anybody who's just joining us, separation is the set of rules that makes IFB people appear different from the world. Clothing rules and rules about going to movies and drinking alcohol and that sort of thing, that's separation. Secondary separation is when you separate yourself from people who are not separated enough. So you don't associate with people if the women in their family wear pants, or you don't associate with people who drink, even though you don't drink, that's separation. You don't associate with anybody who drinks, that's secondary separation. And mainstream evangelicalism tends to practice secondary se separation much more loosely, if at all. So a, a teacher for a, you know, in Mobile, Alabama, where I come from, there are lots of religious private schools. There's a Southern Baptist private school. There's a Lutheran private school. There's a Catholic private school, which may get an episode of Leaving Eden pretty soon because of some shit down there. Oh, I saw that. I sent that to you, McGill. Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm, that mm. makes me mad. So there was Yikes. a yeah, there was a situation. the The teachers, even at the like the Southern Baptist private school, might not even be Southern Baptist. They would generally probably be Protestant, or if not, at least willing to not talk religion at school. Everybody would be required to attend school chapel. Teachers are probably required to sign some kind of morality code. Basic stuff like 
I won't be seen falling down drunk in public. But teachers are not required to be Southern Baptist, be a member of a particular church, uh, or follow every single rule of the school. In the IFB, every teacher at an IFB school would generally be members of the same church. And their morality contract that they would likely sign would include every single church rule and every single thing preached about from the pulpit and every single school rule. So it is a definitely an extra step of that secondary separation. We've heard tell of IFB pastors who, in order to get hired as part of their ministry, that applicants must fill out quite a lengthy questionnaire about specific like doctrines, specifically what their beliefs, specifically how they feel about certain moral issues or practices that some people may allow and some people may not allow. I know of IFB missionaries who would go on deputation and go to different churches, and some churches would make them fill out a morality questionnaire before even considering giving them any financial support. On one such morality questionnaire, the question appeared... What does your wife wear to bed? But th- like if you're a missionary and you're on deputation, that's you going around to all of the different churches and saying, please give us money so that we can do XYZ mission that we're doing either. It, it, it um, is always to evangelize and build an IFB church. That is the only thing that IFB missionaries are allowed to do. Going around to these churches, that is your livelihood. Yep. And if you answer these incredibly personal questions theologically wrong, you will not be able to gain any financial support from that church. Yeah. So, if I mean, what does your wife wear to bed? That's, man. I don't, I do not even know what the answer was that the church was going for. That's how niche and fundy this is. I'm not a man, so I couldn't potentially, I couldn't possibly discern the correct theological answer to that question with my puny little woman brain. If we're doing like hardcore fundamentalism and the, the, and we've read this book by uh, Michael and Debbie Pearl uh, about what what is it? It's called Created to Be His Helpmeet by by Correct. Debbie Pearl, which is the book about all of the rules that you have to follow if you're a fundamentalist wife. And basically, the number one rule is whatever it is that your husband says you do, you 100% have to do that all the time, no exceptions. In fundamentalism, I can't help but think that the correct answer to that question would be like, she wears whatever I tell her. I mean, if that's what your man brain says, I will defer to your superior intellect. I mean, but that's literally it. It's your, like, you could be driving your, your husband could be driving your family off a cliff and you can't tell him, don't drive us off the cliff because God put him in charge of you. That's literally what they believe. She literally. If your husband is driving into the woods where there's no gas station with no gas in the car, you let him. That's pretty close. What, what episode was that? There, it was a. It was like a couple months back. We talked about this book. It was truly insane. But that is the type of like patriarchal world that this is, and I think that the documentary did a good job of showing that. One line I thought Eric Skwarzynski said at the beginning of the documentary, he said, "It feels like your grandma's church." Yeah, is what he said, and, and that's how it appears from the outside. And I thought that was a good way of describing the the feel of it, but that underneath it was something so much more sinister. Yeah, that was really great because it looks just very quaint and homey and old fashioned, and the the real evil is hidden well on the surface. 
let's go um take up the offering uh let's go to break right now and then we'll come back what do you want to talk about after break Uh, i have a couple more things that surprised me and of course you know i want to talk about brent stevens absolutely we've got uh and then we're gonna have some like wrap-up questions and then we're gonna finish this thing up Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, Sadie here. If this is your first time listening to the Leaving Eden podcast, make sure you go back and check out episode 57. It's a primer episode for new listeners. That episode tells my personal story and gives you all the terms and information that you'll need to know going forward. Also, check out our cult true crime series, The First Family of Fundamentalism, so that you can get the whole cult story. If you like our show, you can support us by joining our Patreon, where we have extended and uncensored episodes, as well as other bonus content available. You can also join in the discussion in our Facebook group, That group is called Eden Exodus. Tell a friend, tell a family member, tell your worst enemy. The Leaving Eden podcast is a fully independent podcast, and we really appreciate your support. Now, back to the show. We are back from our break. Uh, We are talking about Let Us Pray, a Ministry of Scandals on HBO Max and Investigation Discovery. We're going to talk about some things in the doc that surprised us. Uh, Sadie. I think my biggest surprise was when david heil's daughter showed up on screen i legitimately was shocked i very literally like jaw dropped everything that you've ever heard about like if you're just listening to this now everything that you've ever heard about david heil's is 100 percent true and you've only heard about 10 percent of the stuff that's out there about him mm-hmm I was so impressed. Um, Jamie, if you hear this, thank you so much for sharing your story. I was so incredibly impressed that you would do that for us. Wow. Um, She did look very nervous on camera, and I really feel for her. I mean, she her dad is David Piles. Within fundamentalism, there are some monsters out there. Like there are the Jim Bob Duggars of the world, and there are the um, Jack Scops of the world. They're the J. Frank Norris's of the world who are abusive, bad people. You know, the Bill Gothards of the world. And then there's people like David Hiles who are truly psychopathic. Yeah, in my opinion, probably a murderer. I 100% believe to the core of my being that David Hiles is a child murderer. And that is our opinion and our opinion only, but boy, is it our opinion. And the child murder is like the fourth worst thing that he's ever done. I know. Um, In the very early few minutes of the documentary, they were showing Sarah Smith's cork board. (laughs) And I've spoken to her. I did an interview with her. Um, Sarah Smith is actually an important part of my story. I did an interview with her, I believe, in like late... 
could have been very late 2018 or early 2019, sometime in 2019. I'd have to look back at the photo because I took a photo um, and you can maybe find this on my social media. I had gathered some of the documentation that I had from Hiles Anderson, my rule book and some class notes that I had and the art, her articles had already been published at the time that I recorded the interview, but she was still kind of looking for supporting facts and for extra stories. And that interview was really the beginning of me speaking out about the IFB publicly at all. So it was, it was a uh, sweet and nostalgic to see her in the documentary. And a lot of the evidence that you, presented to her also became evidence that we used in very early episodes of this show. Yeah. Like the Hiles Anderson rule book in particular. Yeah. So it was neat to see her being a part of this, but she talked about the, the big cork board that she brought to her editors. And one, as the camera pans over this cork board, you see the name Brent Stevens. And I will tell you, when I first saw his name on screen, I just started bawling, just like uncontrollable crying. To see his story finally getting getting told was incredible. Brent Stevens was the one and a half year old son of Brenda Stevens, who uh, left her husband and her church in Texas to move to Northwest Indiana after her affair with David Hiles was found out. The father on his birth certificate is Brenda's ex-husband, her husband at the time of his birth. There's a question mark on whether his father was his legal father, or whether Dave Hiles could have been his father. But this little boy was taken to the hospital and found to have nine broken bones in different stages of healing at one point. David Hiles had some very interesting excuses involving a near-miss car accident where he had to restrain the child in the car to keep him from flying out the windshield and some other excuses. Uh, and then after his hospital stay, Brent came down with a cold. There was a prescription filled for cold medicine for him. The next day after the prescription was filled, the cold medicine bottle was found completely empty and baby Brent had unfortunately died in his sleep. That story clearly has a lot of gaps in it. In order to prevent a like a forensic medical investigation of the body, David Hiles and Brenda Stevens had brent's body embalmed and sent to texas so that his father could bury it right so that the police would never get their hands on the body to examine it until it was no longer suitable they they were not able to do a toxicology report or any blood tests um post-mortem on brent i literally so so i saw this teased in the first episode and i believe in the second episode as well and I just started crying because I never thought I would see Brent Stevens' story on real TV. After knowing his story myself for probably somewhere close to 10 years now, after all of the hundreds of times that I've thought about Brent as I put my own kid to bed, as I take care of my own kid, I don't know if this will lead to a greater investigation or to closure in Brent's case and it may not but to see him get that recognition on TV just broke me. Did you see that David Hiles has been speaking out lately? 
I have seen it. I have not seen the whole video yet. I made it halfway. Eric sent it to me. I made it halfway through. <laughs> and then I had to take a break. David Hiles is, he was the son of Jack Hiles. And he was expected to take over Jack Hiles' ministry. And while Jack Hiles was an abuser and a cult leader and milked all of the money and time and energy out of everybody and and was extremely controlling. David Hiles was a level of violent and abusive that his father was not. Yes. And he was such a problem that even in the IFB, he was seen as not suitable to take over his father's ministry. And Jack Hiles was the most powerful man in the IFB. And he was, he, David Hiles was such a psycho that Jack Hiles didn't even have the power to say, mm-hmm. my son's going to be in charge of this after I'm gone. I am trying to reserve my optimism and not hype myself up so much to think that that real justice is going to be done here. There are problems with the statute of limitations. Um, we know that Nanette's lawsuit against David Hiles has been dismissed, unfortunately. Travesty. But seeing it seeing it on screen is something. And I'm thankful for it, especially for Brent, who is someone, if he were alive, would be several years older than we are. And for somebody who has been without justice, without closure for so long, I was thrilled to see paul cialino on screen did that did that just blow your mind paul cialino looks exactly like i thought he looked oh i know he he's looked the same for like i've seen interviews with him from literally almost 30 years ago and he has looked the same since then like i imagine when, when i heard paul cialino i'm like oh he's an italian guy who's like a chicago cop i was imagining like you know how dennis farina was on Law and Order. Dennis Farina, that's the that's the actor, right? He played Joe Fontana and it oh hold on. It says here that Dennis Farina actually worked as a Chicago police detective. What do you know? I expected that this dude I mean he looks like Dennis Farina kinda. I was thinking Eugene Levy. Oh yeah. A little bit, yeah. No, I I was so thrilled to see him. Um Paul Cialino is the detective who originally investigated Brent's case and was kind of had his his hands tied by the legal system at the time of that first investigation. And he has literally never stopped talking about Brent. Another thing that I thought was really interesting hearing Mr. Cialino talk was how almost word for word what he said in the documentary is what is printed in Fundamental Seduction. Well, I'm sure that he's like repeated that same, those words over and over and over time and time again to anybody who will listen. Fundamental Seduction came out the year before I was born. Fun- Fundamental Seduction, for those who are listening, by the way, is a book that was detailing the ministry of Jack Hiles. And yeah, the all corruption his- and abuse. Um, what was public in 1992. Of course, much has happened since then. It was it was very interesting interesting seeing Paul Cialino almost almost word for word repeat what I recall reading in Fundamental Seduction. Um, within the IFB, like even having admitted to having read this book was enough to get you shunned by everybody that you knew. 
Yes, that happened to Jerry Kafitz, who was a personal friend of Jack Scopp's and mentioned offhandedly to Jack Scopp that he had read the book Fundamental Seduction. Scopp performed Kafitz's wedding. They were close personal friends and business partners for years. And when he admitted to Scopp that he had read this book, Scopp stood up, walked out, never spoke to him again. And you've read this book. Yes. In fact, you're, you have a copy of this book. In fact, the picture, as far as I know, the picture of Brent that they used for the documentary came from my copy. I mean, that, like, I, I did see the book on the, um, there, there was a shot where the book was, like, on, was it, was it on Eric's, like, table? Yeah, I think it's, like, on a table, like, they pan over it. I, I kind of DiCaprio pointed at it. That's, <laughs> I mean, this, this is, like, some inside baseball stuff, but, uh, Sadie lent it to Eric for a little bit. <laughs> yep. Um, that fundamental seduction is now back in print as an ebook, if I'm not mistaken. Last I checked, it was at the time they were filming the documentary, it had not been republished and it was very hard to get your hands on a copy. I waited for seven years to find a copy in my price range. And like every time one would pop up on eBay, it was like $700. Hypothesis is that. People who are connected with First Baptist Church of Hammond would go around and any copy of this book that they could find, they would find and burn. That is, I, that is in fact, my theory. So um, I want to move on to, um, we've covered some of maybe the darker stuff, some of the more inside baseball kind of stuff about this documentary. I want to talk about some of the stuff at the, that happened at the end that was maybe a little bit more um, uplifting. A little bit uh, yeah. seeing. Yeah. So uh, there were a couple of major abusers who were in this documentary that we saw. Uh, initially, we saw um, David Hiles was one of them, although nothing as far as we know has ever happened to him. And he has seen no justice for any of his crimes. There was Paul Fox, who was sentenced to two years. And then at the end, however, there was Aaron Willand, who was the abuser uh, he was ruthie's abuser is that right correct seeing him finally be brought to justice after all of these years where the judge said something along the lines of the fact that you had power and that your word would be taken over your victims and that you probably tried this with other people and then ruthie you know yeah i think it was with kathy there was that moment where they're like oh he gets it and then the judge gives him 11 and a half to 40. Mm -hmm. One quote that really stuck out to me from this part of the documentary was CSA survivors get a life sentence. That is, that is one to chew on and one to think about for sure. The whole section of the documentary where some people's abusers see justice or something vaguely resembling justice and other people walk away scot-free really had a larger meaning for me survivors of ifb abuse whether that be child sexual abuse or things that are even more common than the sickly common child sex abuse like spiritual abuse and physical abuse and emotional abuse and all of those things sometimes we lose everything sometimes people speak out against this and lose their family, their church community, their ability to work. 
or even their career at times, some people do lose everything and some people get a win. Some people's abusers go to prison for a very long prison term. Even the people who get those huge wins, like feeling that their abuser has gotten actual justice through the legal system, still lost so much. And that felt really relatable to me as a survivor of not sexual abuse within the IFB, but many different types of abuse. Because in a lot of ways I've won in life, I am very lucky to have so many things that I have. And there are also things that I lost. Even even the ones of us who turn out okay in the end or have good things happen to us in life still carry those losses. And I think that is the most typical experience for an IFB survivor is, well, I've had some losses, I've had some wins, here we are. So that really that really resonated with me on a on a deeper level of that's kind of the, that is the typical experience that is the experience of almost everyone that I know. I'm not sure if I'm making sense completely. <laughs> no, you make complete sense. One of my thoughts about a lot of those trial scenes um and when they were talking about, you know, the actual act of trying to get justice and justice against um Paul Fox, uh Aaron Willand and Dave Hiles is that I think they did a good job of showing that there is still a, like even after these people have been convicted or, or rightfully accused, very publicly accused of these crimes, there is still a system that will support them. Like I think it was noted, like there are still people that support Dave Hiles. Mm-hmm. There's like Dave House has what is called uh, he has this thing called Fallen in Grace Ministries. This is a real thing, by the way, if you want to look it up. It's called Fallen in Grace Ministries, and it's basically Dave Hiles like trying to have a redemption arc to grift money off of people. I guess is is that how you would describe? That's yeah, how that I would describe. Yeah, that sounds about right. In that he's trying to say, oh, I was a bad person before and I had moral failings in the sense of like, you know, I stumbled in my in, you know, my faith in which is, I mean, kind of how the IFB always frames sexual abusers. If you're a man, it's, oh, I I stumbled in my faith. Whereas if you're a woman, you're a temptress and you are actively evil and you need to be shunned for life. Mm -hmm. Like he's like, I, I was fallen in grace and now I can have my redemption arc and he'll, he has fallen in grace ministries and he'll go around and fundraise off of fallen in grace ministries and go and speak at conferences under fallen in grace ministries and say, donate to, fallen in grace ministries where we help rehabilitate abusers or whatever like john todd rehabilitated satanists and and also mike warnke rehabilitated say oh and also alberto rivera's home for former priests and nuns who were leaving the catholic church like all of those people yes Mm -hmm. every single time that we look at one of these cults half the time it's done by somebody who's like i need to control everybody and the other half of the time, it's done by people who are absolute grifters who have never done an honest day's work in their life and who have never done anything to benefit anybody other than themselves. But the, the, like legit, if you look out there, there is still people who support Dave Hiles, who support his ministry, who will fundraise on his behalf and who think that he is like 
you, you know, that, that his return to grace or whatever is inspiring. And at the same time, when Paul Fox came to his trial where he admitted, he just fully and openly admitted all of the things that he did. He was accompanied by his son. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I don't know. Like I'm trying to imagine if somebody that I knew was admitting to doing all of those things, still wanting to like be around them and still wanting to go with them to support them in the thing that they're doing. I don't know. I mean, I guess Kenny Scott still supports. Yep his dad (sighs) i don't know it's 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 just frustrating that there's so many people who no matter how many evil things and bad things and bad things and bad things and bad things they can do there's still people who will be like no they deserve another chance no we should still support them no we should still support them i think all of all of those courtroom scenes and the updates on where people's legal cases are felt meaningful it was such an illustration of what justice means and what a win means to somebody who has survived the IFB or survived another cult. It makes, it makes me really think about how do I define winning? How do I define recovery? How do I define what does it mean to me to get out and be out? You redefine success. Some of the people in this documentary and a lot of other survivors who were not featured in the documentary talk about the, there was one one person who said my life was never the same i think it was in kathy's victim impact statement at paul fox's trial who expressed that her entire life changed nothing was ever the same for her as it would have been had that not happened and when you are put in that position through no fault of your own where nothing will ever be the same again because this thing was done to you. What does success mean after that? What does a good life mean to you after that? That's something that I live in a lot. And that was something I think was that, that really resonated with me. I mean, for a lot of people, you know, just the, just surviving Mm -hmm. is victory. I've talked to some people who are survivors of those sorts of abuses and they've told me, well, I'm alive and I made it out the other side and I'm doing kind of okay now. And that's all, you know, I can really ask for. Mm -hmm. And I've talked to other people who, you know, their thought is I will not rest until I know that my abuser can't hurt anybody else. And I mean, there's. (sighs) And I think we look at this documentary as a successful example of that. Because no matter how bad people like you and me and the survivors featured in this documentary want David Hiles to face criminal consequences for the crimes that he has committed and the horrible abuses that he has committed, we cannot make that happen by wanting it enough. But there is a record now that is out there forever that is available to a much larger group of the general population of the United States. There is a record of his crimes. There is first-person victim testimony about his crimes. Nanette has gone on record forever, bravely, heroically speaking out about what he did to her. And I wish that we could want it bad enough and get him into criminal court for this, but that's not how the world works. What she has done for us and for everyone 
is the closest thing to that. She has made a permanent record, a permanent warning about what kind of person this man is. And I think we can mourn with her the dismissal of her case, mourn with her the inability to force him into court to actually face legal consequences, but we can also celebrate with her what she has done and the enormity of what she has given to all of us, what she has given to everyone in churches that he's involved with. I want to, uh, before we go and talk about what some of the listener reactions to this were, I want to read a quote. I think this was a quote from Kathy mm-hmm. um, that it, it was, it came towards the end of the, um, of the documentary. And this quote really stuck with us. It was, it's almost like every time you speak out, you're grabbing the hand of someone who needs to come forward. That was such a powerful quote. What these survivors have done is absolutely incredible. And I personally am so thankful to every person who contributed to this documentary. I think as somebody who is a little newer to speaking out in this incredibly public way about the IFB, you know, I've only been doing this just a little bit over three years. And some people like Jerry Massey, um, who has been doing this for decades, People like Rachel Peach, Joy Evans Ryder, Kathy Durbin, some of those people have been around for six, seven, eight years. They are kind of my, I don't know, spiritual foremothers in a way. They started this thing that I do now. And I always want to give credit and give my maximum respect and thanks to those people who made the path that I'm now on. Let's go take up another break and then we'll come back and do the final segment of our show. Is that good? Sounds good to me. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. 
we are back from our break uh thank you guys for tuning in we have just a little bit more that we want to get through and then um we're gonna uh wrap our episode for the day make sure that you join us on monday when we're gonna get rachel peach and eric skwarzynski on the show we're extremely excited for that and that'll be out on monday or if you're a patron it'll be out on uh friday night saturday morning depending on what time zone you are um i think midnight eastern is when the episode's going to come out i want to go and uh uh, talk about because we have in our facebook group we have about I think 3,500 people, a lot of them are fundamentalism survivors. A lot of our, our uh, Facebook group is people who have either come out of the IFB or come out of a similar form of fundamentalism like the IBLP or, um, you, or, or, or some sort of, of a religious fundamental upbringing. And a lot of them had strong feelings on what they saw in the documentary, and I wanted to maybe platform some of those views. So we posted a thread in the Facebook group with our listeners where they were reacting to the doc. And I'm just going to, I'm going to kind of paraphrase a lot of people's statements because I don't want to like quote somebody without crediting them. And I don't want to, you know, credit somebody without asking for permission to use their statement. Lots of people were triggered to hell by hearing Jack Hiles and Jack Scopp's voices in the intro of the documentary. Lots of people just like they couldn't get through it. And that was the reason. Aaron in our Facebook group recommended uh, watching the documentary on mute, but with subtitles. And so if maybe you're trying to hold off on maybe, you know, just in the intro, you heard Jack Hiles say the, you know, the quote about, uh, uh, you know, in every cell where there's a rapist, there should be like a half naked woman in the cell next to him. If you were triggered to hell by hearing Jack Hiles say that, then maybe that method would work for you. You know, I did find hearing Jack Hyle say it, but hearing you quote it. Really? Turn my stomach. Mm -hmm. It's an awful thing to say. I think I'm so used to hearing awful things in his voice. I'm very, it's like I have armor on. So I did think the idea of modifying this documentary so that you consume it was really powerful. It's a tiny way of taking your own power back, isn't it? Yeah. Like choosing to watch this, knowing that you are going to be triggered by some things, choosing not to watch it, knowing that it's going to be too triggering for you, choosing how and when you watch it, choosing your time or watching it on mute with subtitles on. When a person does that, you're telling these men, Jack Hiles, Jack Scott, and other people, you don't get to tell me how I'm going to deal with this content. You don't get to choose whether I decide to go into it knowing that I'm going to be triggered or if I try to mitigate how I'm going to be triggered or if I'm going to choose not to watch it because you don't have the power to trigger me anymore and I choose not to. I choose how to engage with this. You don't get to tell me anymore. So I thought that was really powerful. That is really powerful. And that's a great way of putting it, man. I just think like that's that's such an awful quote. The, there I mean, are they, many they, awful quotes in this documentary. I mean, they literally put that quote in like the beginning of episode one, and I'm just like zero to a hundred right away. Let's go. like, but like, yeah. I mean, you and I have listened to a lot of. I mean, you've listened to more Jack Hyle sermons than I have. But that, like, I think that's so emblematic of what the IFB teaches about women, teaches about sex, teaches about purity. If you're 
just tuning into this show now, like on Monday, we had an episode where we talked about every single IFE modesty rule or all of the ones that say. And I still missed some because <laughs> there was more stuff in the Facebook group that I thought, oh, my goodness, I forgot that one. You're like, oh, what you guys did? You guys have this boot rule? Did you guys have that? Like, <laughs> what was the rule about scarves? No, but like, it, you know, it, where we talk about like the rules about skirt length, the rules about like what cu- type of shirts you're allowed to wear. But the the idea behind that is that men cannot be control like their sexual thoughts cannot be controlled and their sexual actions cannot be controlled. So it's up to women to avoid any uh uh uh, you know triggering that in men and if you don't do it and you get abused then it's your fault and that is the culture and i thought the documentary did a great way of 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 displaying that one commenter said that they were present for many of the clips that were used in the documentary and and they praised the uh the, the let us pray doc for accurately depicting the sexual conditioning and grooming of women and girls that occurs in the IFB. And they also described the like just the exasperated feeling that they feel trying to describe this like cult next door to just like regular people who are just like whatever. And they also said that it is difficult for people who are not raised in this environment to fully understand. And additionally, there is a sentiment that which, you know, many other people echoed that they felt great vindication in seeing these stories really being told for a large audience. I was present for a lot of those, too. It was really, I think the one that really got me was the TV smashing sermon. Oh, yeah, we saw that one. Yeah, I was I was there for that one. Of course, I was there for the polished shaft and some of the other little clips that they showed the polish shaft aka how sadie ruined uh, the birthday party by pulling up when people are pulling up youtube videos i told you oh that was another interesting comment that we got on social media people who had never seen the polished shaft video but had only heard my verbal description of it (laughs) and i apparently did not do a good enough job i mean how do you describe it though like, I mean, we posted the video on social media. We're just like this, like... No, there were there were people who had, had never seen it and were shocked by having seen it. And that was fun. Uh, yeah. I'm still getting the ick from that. Just like, I mean, I wasn't triggered by Jack Hauser, Jack Scoff's voice, but I will tell you, I, because I mean, I don't have trauma related to them. I will tell you that like I, as a person who did not grow up with any of this stuff, did not sleep well the night after I watched this documentary. It's very jarring. I think even for those of us who did grow up in the IFB and have now left, it's easier to not think about how bad it was it's it is very upsetting and jarring to be confronted with this is how bad it really was uh, oh that's the other thing i remembered the other thing that surprised me about this documentary and i will probably ask eric about this on when we record our interview with him but he said there are 8 million ifb in the united states i was shocked i think i estimated just totally napkin math in one of our very first episodes, and I had guessed eh, maybe as many as two million. So I was very surprised to hear that. Eight million. Eight million. That's more than there are Jews in America. Did you know that? I did not know that. 
There's, I think, let me look it up. I think it's like, it says 7.6 million people. So the IFB maybe just barely beats them out. <laughs> That's terrifying. Yep. <sighs> yeah. Mm. No, thanks. Although I wonder if that includes NIFB and includes like. Yeah, but there's like 5,000 NIFB. That's true. NIFB. Also, Steven Anderson was in there a little bit. Steven Anderson had one little clip. I saw that and I thought, oh, no. There's no way you can possibly cover NIFB and old IFB in this in this documentary. You cannot go into Steven Anderson right now. And they didn't. And I was very relieved. <laughs> there were a lot of I mean, there were a lot of moments in the doc where it was very much like, a, oh, if you know, you know, mm-hmm. moment where like there was the one where they where there was a line where somebody said, I mean, Jack Hiles literally said, you know, this is poison. Will you drink it? Uh-huh. And that was kind of like a throwaway line, but we're like, no, he actually did that. He actually like, right. This must've been like, what year was Jonestown? 1977? Jonestown is 1978. Poison Sermon is 1990, I believe. After Jonestown, Jack Hiles, this is wild. If you don't know this story, Jack Hiles, and we have audio of it. If you go back and listen to our first family of fundamentalism series, we have the actual audio of that, of him doing this. Like, in in the episode jack hiles gets up on stage and says is like explaining about how like sin is poison in your life and he like gets like rat poison and puts it into some orange juice and offers it to somebody and says if i told you to drink this would you drink this and the guy's like yes i would drink it if you told me to drink it jack hiles and he's like no that's real loyalty and i admire that like <laughs> it's like what the mm-hmm. what ah uh, no um but yeah god i i don't know um so I, I, I'm going to move on to the next comment. Um, the ne- another commenter remarked that they are glad to see these stories seeing the light of day, but that there is like that they personally had some reticence to fully condemn their own IFB church or, you know, like they even have like almost a, a, a spiritual need to like in the back of their head, like a voice in their head telling like almost like excusing the abuses that they suffered. Or like playing apologist for the IFB in their own head. And that's the brainwashing. And that sticks with you. There is there's nothing wrong with you. There's something wrong with what has been done to you. If that's if that's you, please don't come down too hard on yourself for that. That's that's the brainwashing. You will be okay. Please don't blame yourself or shame yourself for that. But that's something that we've heard from so many people. Yeah. Because it's the brainwashing. So um, I think there's like one question that I have left that I want to ask you. Um, okay. And this was one that we asked to Chad Harris in the TikTok live that he was doing um, the other day. Is uh, So this year we've seen documentary on IVLP and, and the Duggar family um, with Shining Happy People. And we've seen Let Us Pray, which is about the IFB in general. What do you think is the next, like, who do you think is next? Who Who is going to get their expose next? Or who would you like to see get their expose next? Hmm. I have an answer, but it's not going to be popular. What? I don't know if I can put this on air because I'm going to make a lot of listeners. Um, the Southern Baptist Church. That's an interesting answer. And I would I would absolutely watch that documentary. The reason I'm so reticent to say it is because I, the the cover up of the sexual abuse database in the Southern Baptist Church in particular 
is more than worth a documentary. But I feel that so many Southern Baptist believers are redeemable, genuine, good people. And the convention is such a mess right now. The whole pirate thing that went on a couple years ago over Black Lives Matter was terrible. The literal sexual abuse database that the convention made and then covered up and failed to protect so many people is reprehensible. But the the Southern Baptist Convention works a little bit more loosely than other denominations. It is a, because of the convention format. So I don't want to come off as if I'm condemning every Southern Baptist church, and I want to stay far away from condemning every Southern Baptist believer, because I certainly understand loving a church family when the denomination is a wreck. I certainly understand having a belief system when the denomination that is the foundation of that belief system is a wreck. And I do not want to come off as condemnatory towards anybody who attends a Southern Baptist church, especially because they are such a nice landing place for so many people who come out of the IFB. See, that's the thing that I was thinking is that like, how many people do we know on their way out of the IFB? They like the first church that they went to that wasn't an IFB church was a Southern Baptist church. Oh, so many because it's, it's so rebellious because the IFB hates the Southern Baptist Convention uh, because the IFB was born out of the Southern Baptist Convention. It, so it feels like a big, rebe- big rebellion, but the theology and the liturgy are going to be very familiar to somebody who's coming out of the IFB. So I wouldn't even say the Southern Baptist religion or the Southern Baptist church, but rather the Southern Baptist Convention, very specifically. For... A lot of IFBers, like a lot of IFB families, if your kid leaves the IFB, that's a fucking terrible thing. To, like, that's like one of the worst things that you can think of to have happen to your family. But if you're like, oh, they're out of the F, but they're Southern Baptist, that's like a in the bargaining stage of grief. It's at least they're still Baptist. At least they're still soteriologically mostly okay. <laughs> At least I can tell myself in my head that the version of the Bible they're using is the King James version of the Bible, even mm-hmm. if it might not be. And I'm, you know, like, yeah. So the I feel very differently about the Southern Baptist Convention than I do the IFB. I would be pretty happy if ninety five percent of the IFB churches in the country closed tomorrow. That would probably be a net good. I do not feel nearly that strongly about individual Southern Baptist churches. I would love to see the convention brought to its knees and have to completely rebuild on more ethical principles. Um, but I don't feel I don't feel that burn it down energy nearly to the extent that I do with the IFB. Well, when we were talking to Chad about this, one of the things that Chad said, and I thought this was very poignant was he he said that one or or that there shouldn't be another focus until one of the ones that has had their doc come out actually like falls actually like is is completely defunct now and because 
when you start because one of the things that he said was he said that when people start feeling vulnerable that's when they start making mistakes i think the one to watch like he was pointing out about how the iblp and the ati what's going to happen to them after like maybe bill gother dies or if they're going to try to do like a full rebrand or something like that i'm gonna i'm looking at faith baptist church and i'm looking at bruce goddard paul fox and victor montero were both assistant pastors at faith baptist church under bruce goddard and bruce goddard covered for both of them and bruce goddard is now like exposed exposed i'm wondering what's going to happen i'm wondering like what kind of pr meetings they're having in faith baptist church right now i'm wondering what they're telling their congregants and that's going to be something that we're going to monitor and so maybe in the next like six months to a year maybe fewer people start attending their church maybe they the outreach within the community that they're trying to have stops being as effective and people you know understand oh that's the bad church maybe the pool maybe starts to dry up a little bit and things start you know their belt starts getting tightened a bit financially and that's when they start making mistakes and so if we start seeing headlines about faith baptist church in wildemar california that's what i'm going to be looking for when i see are these people actually vulnerable yeah, I am not quite as hopeful about Faith Baptist Church in Wildemar because I, uh, Bruce Goddard is a very quietly powerful man within the IFB. He doesn't flaunt his power and influence the way that somebody like Jack Scott did when he had power and influence. You'll excuse me for relishing that a little bit. Uh, but he is, uh, Goddard is is more powerful than he appears. The thing about the ATI, IBLP, and the IFB to me is that ATI is something that can be killed, and right now ATI is currently dead. IBLP is hanging on by a thread. The IFB movement is not something that can be killed. However, we could see something big happen. We could see Hiles Anderson close. And to me, that would be a victory. A pretty big one. The other thing that I think would be a big victory would be if there was some sort of federal law passed that changed the way that homeschooling was done, that was, was accredited, that homeschooling mm -hmm. curriculums were accredited. And that would be something that like, and I know that like, that would be very difficult to get through Congress right now, or that would be very difficult to um, pass and, and make a law out of. But that's something where they're just like, yeah, we just want to make sure that, you know, homeschooling curriculums are, are properly teaching the right things, pass a law about that, have some actual oversight with that. And that mm -hmm. would, I think, be once like, because I'm remembering Amanda Householder what she said was that she she just wanted at, at the end of the documentary after uh circle of hope and agape boarding school were closed one of the things that she said was she just said i want there to be oversight of these homes mm -hmm. and that's like a very reasonable thing for some for somebody to say if we just said oh we need there to be oversight over homeschooling curriculum and people to actually check in on families who are homeschooling their children to make sure everything is okay something very reasonable something very common sense that might be enough to actually take the wind out of the sails of a lot of these fundamentalists if you want to know more um, about people who are fighting for 
better and reasonable homeschool regulations, we do recommend you check out the Coalition for Responsible Home Education. Um, That is a group that Heather Heath has supported and worked with our wonderful podcast friend, author of Lovingly Abused. Prominently featured in Shiny Happy People. (laughs) Hilarious in Shiny Happy People, as she is always. Coalition for Responsible Home Education is not fighting to end homeschooling at all, but working for reasonable guidelines, reasonable laws that protect homeschoolers in the United States. I think another huge, if we're talking about legal wins, another huge legal win would be enhancing different state laws to lengthen the statute of limitations or do away with the statute of limitations for child sexual abuse. This is something that Joy Evans Ryder has fought for and was able to change the law in the state of Indiana. Um, So we could see if we're looking for legal wins, more legal wins in more states regarding that would be great. And I think that's about it for everything that we want to say about this doc. This was really something for me. I, I watched and supported and promoted shiny happy people. I've watched so many other cult documentaries that had so much in common with my experience. I remember watching Keep Sweet, Pray and Obey, which was the FLDS documentary, uh, and reviewing that on the podcast. I didn't watch and support and talk about those documentaries with expectation, right? Like, it's not, I scratch your back, you'll scratch mine when when it's my turn, when it's the IFB documentary. That was not my mindset at all. But it is really something to finally have my turn, our turn, IFB survivors. It's our turn. And that feels incredible. I think so many of us have been just sitting and waiting for the IFB to have that national stage. While we were recording, I looked at my phone and Let Us Pray is currently number seven on Max today nice so we have already hit top 10 um i mean that they released it holiday weekend this week it's gonna like climb up more (laughs) you know i would love to see it hit number one i think it will happen i believe it will happen it is incredible for it to be our turn it is incredible to see the stories presented in this documentary receive the attention that they truly deserve and we are, of course, we'll talk about this more when we have Eric and Rachel on in just a couple days. But of course, we are so thankful. And I want to end this on a word of thanks to the participants in the documentary, to the makers of the documentary, to all other survivors who have been speaking out about the IFB, about their experiences. Thank you so much. And especially to the incredibly brave women who shared their stories on this documentary. We just could not be, I could not be more thankful. And thank you, Sadie. Oh, yeah, I guess. <laughs> this is, this has been uh, the Leaving Eden podcast. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. If this was your first episode um, and you want to learn more about the IFB, we have a lengthy and extensive back catalog of episodes about the IFB and about every single detail of this cult that you might want to know about and many that we haven't talked about yet and do plan to talk about in the future um if you want to hear about the hiles uh jack hiles the hiles dynasty 
and all of the scandals there. And we have a five part series that we recorded back in fall of 2020 called the first family of fundamentalism. Uh, we also have an episode that we made as a primer episode for new listeners. That's episode 57. So if you want to go back and check out episode 57, that'll like get you a lot of the, the details that you need to know going forward. Episode 57 is trying to put my story in context of the IFB movement. If you want to hear episodes about the IBLP and the Duggars, we have episodes about those too. And just this Monday, we came out with an episode about all of the IFB dress standards and their their modesty rules. Um, and we have episodes about purity culture, all of those sorts of things, if you were raised with that. We also have episodes about the more theological aspects. So we had an episode about heaven, and we had an episode about hell a couple weeks ago. And those were very interesting to get into on a theological basis and to learn about those things. If you want to follow us on social media, we're on Facebook, we're on Instagram, we're on threads. We're not really on Twitter anymore, um, but the handle is at Leaving Eden Podcast. You can follow me on social media at G-A-V-R-I-E-L-H-A-C-O-H-E-N. You can follow me on Instagram at Sadie Carpenter Music, on Twitter at Hell Yeah Sadie, and on TikTok at Sadie Carpenter One. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. You guys have a great day. Bye-bye. Yeah.